Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Danny Reich, and if you're not familiar with Danny, Danny is a multi-instrumentalist. He's a songwriter, a producer, an engineer, and a studio owner. He originally built a studio in Texas called Good Danny's, but he's since moved out to LA to make a version out there, and he's worked with a lot of great artists, including local natives, Bayany, Barnes Courtney, and a whole bunch more. And in this interview, we have a really interesting chat all about creating a studio environment that is inspiring, something that inspires creativity, but also an environment that makes people feel comfortable and let their guard down so that they can ultimately flourish in the studio and allow you to get cool sounds and get genuine performances that really move people. And he shares some little tricks that he does to keep artists inspired and making sounds that move people. And again, just you feel the music. And part of creating this thriving environment is creating efficiencies and being able to work fast in the studio and not being bogged down by things like setup and all that kind of stuff. So we also chat a little bit about how he goes about creating efficiencies in the studio to achieve that. And he is someone who really enjoys using analog gear. And analog is typically known as being this kind of slower medium these days, right? But Danny shares some tips here for how he incorporates the analog setup with his digital stuff so that everything goes much quicker and, again, creates this environment where creativity can flourish and you can get to work really fast. So I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in this interview. Let's just jump right into it. Danny Reich, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. What's going on, man? Hey, thanks so much for having me, Mike. No problem. For people who might not be familiar with you and your work and your background on how you got into all of this stuff, can you give us that story? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll try to give you the abridged version because um, I've been doing this since I was 15. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a musician myself. I'm a drummer, kind of play a little bit of everything, but I come to this side of, of uh, recording by way of being a musician first. And uh, my interest kind of lies, or at least my initial kind of foray into music recording was just having fun goofing off with friends, recording stupid songs on a four track. And, uh, and I had my first studio quote unquote experience when I was maybe 14 or something like that, which was, uh, recording on a mini disc four track in a buddy's garage in Denton, Texas. And, uh, simultaneously was the first time I ever smoked weed. And also, the first time I ever heard Ween, and I thought, this is all I want to do for the rest of my life. And that's all I've done for the rest of my life, minus the smoking <laughs> weed. But uh, but yeah, uh, you know, my 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 first recording experiences were uh, were just making stupid songs on like spend the nights with my buddy Chris Gruber. His older brother, Jeff, was like uh, I mean, his, he had a band, like a high school band, and we idolized them. And they're like the Rolling Stones to us. So we'd, you know, write stupid songs and go, Jeff, will you record this on your four track? We got this song. And he'd do it, you know, a few times. And then he was like, listen, let me show you how to do this. Because, I mean, you know, when you're 16, the last thing you want to do is record your little brother's, you know, 
goofy songs he's writing with their friends. So, uh, so he kind of pointed us in the right direction and let us loose. And that was kind of like, that was kind of the beginning of all of it. That's amazing. Funny enough. I, yeah, I just, so I just moved my studio, um, from Texas out here to Los Angeles where I, where I've lived for the last year, year or two. And, uh, I, I found all of these four track tapes in a bunch of like a bunch of these songs and I've been digitizing them and man, it has been very cathartic and equal parts cringy and, um, <laughs> like just, but, but also, you know, really beautiful to, to recognize yourself from 25 years ago and still kind of find your own humanity in, in all of that. It's been a, a very fun experience, uh, kind of going back to the beginning. So that's fun. Yeah I, yeah, I totally I went through the same experience maybe like three or four years ago. I, I happened to find these like a like one of the first bands I ever recorded. I found some some of their stuff and uh listened back to it and I was like wow like he <laughs> but then but what was funny was then uh, I'm still buddies with a lot of those guys. So we were like I, I kind of brought up I was like why don't we re-record these tracks? Like I want to hear oh wow like 20 years later what would this have sounded like, you know? And, yeah. uh, and it's, it's amazing just like how you can just see your progression just like in an instant like that. And it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good. There's, uh, there's nuggets in there that I'm sure are still there that you recognize. And that's, uh, that's like a really important thing to kind of, especially with production. I, I do think you have to have a really strong sense of yourself, of your taste, um, certainly of quality, but, you know, really like having faith in your judgment, emotional judgment, um, all of that stuff. So those, those moments of recognition, um, I don't know. I think that's really important. It's important to see where you've come. It's, it's easy to, especially in our world to just be kind of like next thing, next thing, next thing, and not sort of like look back and, um, like appreciate the journey of the whole trip. Totally. And, and what's really interesting too, is that, I feel like when I listen back to those recordings, like there are, there are some very magical moments there, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where I think that that ignorance of not having the quote unquote, like right way to do things, uh, it kind of inspires you to lean into that, those feelings a little bit more and, you know, just really try to capture an energy and all that without being lost in the technical aspect of it. Yeah, totally. I mean, my, my experience listening to these, these early demos was like, how did we get that sound? It's like, it's wrong in the like most interesting, cool way. I, I would love to be able to record something like that. I don't even know what versions of adapters and whatever we were using, <laughs> but it's, it's like bad in the coolest way. Uh, so there's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There, there is a thing where like the more, you know, the more entrenched and quote unquote, the right way you can get. And that is kind of, I mean, it's good to know how things work and have, you know, have processes in place for efficiency and all that stuff. Or work being a professional, there's expectations of delivering results at the end of every day. But there's also a real beauty in not knowing the right way and a freedom and a creativity that comes from just plugging it in. And I don't know, it sounds OK. I've, I've got some in my headphones, so let's just like go with it. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's almost like restrictive sometimes when you know the 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 right way to do it or the quote unquote right way to do it because you know you feel like okay, well this is just how I set up a mic now or you know the right position that I'm going to use or whatever. And then you know back then like the magic kind of came from not knowing and you kind of just like experimented and you threw things wherever. And then 
you know, that was that was how you captured that cool sound. So I think it, it kind of does like remind you sometimes that you got to break out of your habits and, you know, be willing to mess around a little bit more and, and try to find unique ways. And and with your experience over time, you 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 know how to correct yourself, too. Right? You can quickly make that decision of like, oh, yeah, this thing I experimented with, it sucks. Like, let's just move on and, you know, do this other way. But um, it's kind of refreshing in that sense that, you know, reminds you to just keep learning. It is. And that that openness to doing things that may challenge your sort of norms and process um, often uh, yields really interesting results. If someone's got an idea, being open to uh, someone going, well, I'd, I'd like to try it this way. And you're like, I'm thinking of 10 reasons immediately why we don't do it like that. But <laughs> you know what? You could just try it real quick and maybe it's awesome and maybe it's not. And I think that that openness is uh, that that is kind of where, where all of the fun comes from. It's where the challenges come from. Um, that's where you have to get really creative and you're still using your instincts to navigate all of those things. And you're, you know, trying to capture something with quality and that's, you know, interesting, but, uh, being hardlined on the process, I, I don't think is, is good for sort of like curating and creating the creative environment you want while you're making records. I think it's, uh, if someone's got an idea, it's like, let's just try it real quick. And if it's great, it's great. And if it's not, we'll just move on to something else. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, that kind of leads me to one question that I was curious about when I was researching your studio. Um, there was a quote on there that said something along the lines of uh, at the studio, maybe not your current one, because I know you just moved, but um, it had mentioned that every instrument in the studio was always mic'd up and that every keyboard was already patched and every line was already run. And I love the idea of that because it gets people running up and running really quickly. But it kind of is like a little bit counterintuitive to what we're just talking about here, where like, you know, the the experimenting of, you know, finding new positions and that kind of stuff. Like, did, did you feel like it, that ever happened to you or like you were like, ah, this kind of just sounds the same as everything else or or, what, you know, what was the intention behind setting the studio up that way? So the intention, really, the intention is to make the engineering as invisible as possible to make the process of engineering feel so fluid and so synonymous with just being creative and expressive that there's never anything holding you back from doing what I just talked about, trying something really quick. Maybe it's great. Um, let's just try it. And I, I don't, I, you know, those moments when you've got an idea for a song, uh, maybe it's just a little part. You're kind of hearing something in the back of your head. By the time you stop and get a mic stand out, get an XLR, put it on, get some levels, mic it up. Someone's been outside. They've smoked a cigarette. They come back in and it's like, it's kind of gone. You have such a short window when someone's got a little idea to grab it and to sort of foster it and encourage it and water it. Um, I, I don't want to be impeded by the process in capturing those moments. So that's really like the idea behind it. The idea is not that this is the only way we mic a piano. This is the Mm -hmm. only way we ever record the Leslie cabinet. This is the only way we ever capture the Wurlitzer. It's just that if we want to do something quick, it's right at our fingertips. And then from there, I'm always going to treat stuff differently. Different projects are going to require, are going to have radically different uh, rules and sort of like, uh, production style. So it's it's not to say that every record sort of sounds the same because that's the way we always do it. It's just a, a good starting off point mm-hmm. for jumping into the idea. And then from there, we'll left turn. I mean, the second we pull up sounds, we're going to immediately, you know, go, okay, that's cool. But like, let's put a, let's put something else up or let's, 
let's run this through some crazy filter and and do something fun with it and get people excited. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you're kind of just leaning into you're you're creating an environment that allows people to lean into that inspiration or uh, that energy when they feel it. And yeah, I I think that that's really cool. Um, So with that said, then. You know, another way that you can do that is often people will use templates so that they, you know, they eliminate a lot of that uh, setup of a, of a mix session and that kind of stuff. Like, do you find yourself templating a lot of like the, the back end side of things like that with with your mix sessions? I wish I did, because I think it would probably speed things up. But I work on such different kinds of music and I love so many different styles and genres. Um, I don't really work off of a template. Um, everything is kind of bespoke. I do have certain go-tos that, uh, like my two bus chain tends to be the same three or four or five pieces of gear that are all normaled in the patch bay. Whether I use them all on every mix, uh, just depends what the song needs. Everything's going to get tweaked a little bit, but, um, no, I, I, I wish I, I, I wish I had that set up, but it's just the rules that work for certain kinds of certain genres, certain, certain styles. It just it doesn't work on everything. I can't go from like an electronic track where we're using like (laughs) tons of samples and then immediately switch gears and go into a rock track and have a template that, I mean, maybe, maybe the solution is to have multiple templates, but it's so source dependent. It's so song dependent. It's so uh, dependent on the emotion. I it's, I'm, I'm always kind of just reacting to what I'm hearing and then immediately trying to, sort of dress it up or triage or, or, or execute whatever I'm, whatever I feel something needs. Um, mm-hmm. to that end, I mean, I, I mix on a console and I use a lot of outboard gear and I use a ton of outboard effects. Um, what I do is I do have some kind of go-to busing schemes. Um, things do kind of tend to come out to similar outputs. There's a similar palette that I'm kind of like, accessing on the console how i use it may be totally different but i do try to keep things moving quickly um and that way all of my outboard effects are normal to outputs and inputs on one of my interfaces so it's as simple as using a plugin for me if i want to throw something to a plate or a tape echo or some weird effect all that stuff is just on sends return so it's I, i'm basically trying to combat both my own laziness because it feels really bad to be looking at a real space echo and pull up the space echo plugin. (laughs) But, um, but I'm also trying to work quick. And, and when I have that gut reaction go, I want to hear it do this. And then it's like right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, I mean, it sounds like to some degree you, you have created those efficiencies with your analog system and your analog workflow by having all of those things normaled and patched a certain way and all that. And so to some degree that, I mean, that's, like the analog equivalent of a template, you know, it's like, it's kind of already getting you up and running really quickly. So you're not, you know, starting from scratch entirely and and wiring, completely rewiring everything to make it work. Yeah. Or some like crazy patching scheme to make this one mix work. And you're like, this is this like monstrous headache to even try stuff. I I don't want to, I don't want to be impeded in any way. Uh, Efficiency is like everything to me. So yeah, I think I think keeping like the session movement, keeping the creative momentum, whether it's me in a room mixing or um, or it's in the tracking session, whatever I can do to keep the flow going and and stay efficient is paramount to me. Uh, people expect, 
you to del- like deliver every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, record budgets aren't getting bigger. So, you know, having, having those things dialed in where maybe you have less time than you'd like with a band, but you can still deliver at the end of every single day. You're like, I can't believe we got through all that. That is always the goal. Yeah, of course. And I'm totally with you. I think efficiency is everything. You you definitely have to be very um, on top of it because you don't want a band sitting around, you know, while you're like you're killing momentum while trying to get everything rewired and this and that. So, um, yeah, you have to be really efficient. What are some of the other ways that you found personally that uh, have helped you become more efficient in the studio? Like any any specific uh, workflows that you use there to, to help with that or any, any other ideas there? Um, efficiency, um, in, in terms of efficiency on the, on the tracking side, like I said, having every instrument mic'd up, that's huge for me, whether we use the drum kit that's already mic'd up or not, or we strike it and throw something else in, or we, you know, kind of switch mics out, whatever, whatever it is, I want to have a starting point where I can immediately dig in and we can get a band up and running really quick because that gets people excited about the experience and there's like a positive feedback loop that happens when you're kind of creating a scenario where happy accidents can happen, where people feel like they're in this place where anything they want to do is sort of like available to them. Every color in the crayon box is just right there and they can just grab it and start going. That is the best feeling. And that comes from being a musician. I mean, sitting around for six hours getting drum sounds, I'm like, dude, what a terrible way to start the record. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have to, and it's, you know, there's a a lot of focus put on certain aspects and it does take time, but, um, anything to keep people's excitement and energy and the flow going is, you know, that's, that's my sweet spot. I want every synth in the studio plugged in all the mm-hmm. time through submixers. I've, I've got little speakers in my synth room where, um, you know, people can just, I can, well, be totally honest i can kind of like banish people out there i'm like okay why don't you go keep yourself busy over there while i get some <laughs> actual work nice done to have in a little here. lounge room just to, just for yeah, that purpose right? i got an idea why don't you go play with these synths in there and then inevitably you know you end up with someone going hey i got this amazing sound in here i've got this amazing thing and i'm like well it's already it's already run through sub mixers i'm just going to throw this into two inputs and pro tools and we're we're going um that kind of really what it is is kind of like trying to curate and encourage the happy accidents. And that comes down, I'll already pull up, I'll go around to four or five different synths in the studio and maybe kind of build some patches that are cool for something that's coming in that day just so the first time they touch the keyboard, they're like, whoa, this sounds amazing. This could be so cool on this thing. And it feels like discovery and it feels like, uh, you know, excitement about about possibilities that maybe are outside of just the sort of to-do list of all the stuff we got to get done. It sort of shifts the gear from this sort of spreadsheety way of operating on records, which kind of sucks, to kind of like letting people's minds kind of go way beyond whatever they preconceived of the song and go, well, maybe this is cooler. Maybe we, maybe, maybe this is the song. Maybe this is Maybe we ditch all those things that we came in with and this thing that we're all excited about is like the new path. I love that. Yeah, I, I love what you said there about like maybe creating some synth patches that people, you know, hit play and or they, you know, hit a couple of keys and they get inspired by that. I think that that's a, a really interesting approach and like, 
You know, it's it's uh, you know, so much of what we do in this in this industry is a psychological thing. And sometimes like, you know, that that little thing like that is like a little psychological tool to like get somebody inspired and feeling creative. And and I think that that's uh, that's that's a cool advantage of being in a studio like yours, you know, where like people come in and they they feel like they're ready to do work and not, you know, just kind of go through like you said, that like kind of uh, spreadsheety templated kind of approach of being in a studio. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's uh, and it, it may be just that, you know, it's it's on me, too. Um, I want to bring my best self to every session. I mean, it, it is uh, at the end of the day, the majority of our job is sort of personality wrangling and therapizing and sort of it's a very personal thing that we've been brought into creating art together. There's a lot of trust that has to be earned there for your opinions to be and come across and to collaborate we're you know multiple artists painting on the same canvas and um i i i try really hard to understand like on a on a deep level what the motive is for the creativity for this for the project what it means what the um expectations are i think that's a huge thing before you're even in the session is having real conversations about what do you expect of me what how can I best serve this? Understanding where people are coming from. What does this record mean? What does this song mean? Um, and and kind of like allowing people to feel vulnerable to a degree. And mm. and uh, because it is a little scary the first time you get on the mic and there's maybe a room full of people. It's there's there's definitely a lot of nerves there, especially people who are less experienced. Um, it's it's a little nerve wracking, and I want to remove that by creating a very trusting environment where it's okay to do something totally stupid we can either laugh about it or not and we can move on and just keep keep moving but you can't really get to the good stuff unless people are able to let the guard down a little bit and try to step outside their creative comfort zone and um i mean that comes from me too bringing bringing the best of myself to the session and my most creative self to the session i you know People sometimes with scheduling, they're really pushing for me to come in. And I've, I've, maybe I've been on like 11 or 12 straight days on another project. And they're like, we just got to get the, these two days in. I'm like, I just, you don't want the me that's going to show up on that session that day. Like, I know what I, where my limits are. And I know what I need to bring to a session and to the environment. And uh, I'm, it's taken a long time to get there because I'm, a very generous, very giving person, and I will absolutely put my back to the wall and run myself ragged working. But uh, I've just learned that that does not serve the process at all. And I've I've said yes to stuff and shown up, and I, I need to I need to sort of self manage that. Uh, and and uh, if it if I don't have that energy to give or that creativity, if I'm all wrung dry, then it's definitely better to wait the extra two weeks and come in and have the better session where we slam dunk. For sure. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, one of the things that I, I feel like I've been leaning into a little bit more with this podcast is talking to people about setting up their vision for their projects. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about that as far as like sonically and, you know, knowing, you know, having a conversation with the band about what kind of sound you want it to be. And then you can make the decisions to get that sound. But also a big part of that conversation is actually about the experience for the artists as well and knowing how to create that environment for them where they feel safe and they feel comfortable and and they're getting 
that experience that allows them to be creative and, you know, let their guard down. And so I think it is really important to have those conversations very early on, um, like you talked about there. And I think you can even learn a lot from, like, I, I find always when I get into those kind of conversations, if, if a band has ever worked at, a, at another studio or something like that, sometimes it's like, why are you looking to work with someone new? And like that in itself can reveal so much about how to create an experience for them where they're totally comfortable or, you know, like you learn the good and bad of what happened at another place. And then, you know, you can kind of use that to your advantage to really create that safe environment for people. Right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, is uh, because everyone's got so much invested in their art, in their creativity, those prior experiences can really inform how you, the version of you that they really need in that environment. Um, and really it comes down, it's like trauma, honestly, like people do have studio trauma. They go in, they work with someone who's dismissive or not attentive or bullish or, or, or disinterested and won't give an opinion or whatever it is, whatever version of it that let them, led them to feel however they felt coming out of that. And I don't want to repeat that. And if I need to be stronger, you know, have like stronger opinions and they're really looking to me for that versus someone who maybe really needs a gentle touch and a little different. And, you know, that that's so important for me to know so I can calibrate myself. Um, obviously, there's going to be a through line. My my mixes, my productions, they they sound like me to a degree because it's still just me. But but knowing the angle you have to come in at to sort of foster that safety zone is huge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're typically dealing with a lot of people who, you know, they've, they've put a lot of their emotions and their, their true feelings on the line here by writing these songs and, you know, making these lyrics that are deeply personal and revealing sometimes or whatever. And so, you know, there is that, um, that fine line that you have to tread of like, you know, being respectful of some, uh, you're always trying to be respectful with them, but like, you have to know what respect looks like in their eyes too. Cause some, yeah, like you said, like you might be, you know, you might be giving somebody some feedback and you need to know how far or how much feedback they want. Maybe you go gentle, maybe you, you have to go a little bit more. Um, but it's it's really about making sure that ultimately that, yeah, that, that artist feels confident and comfortable enough to be receiving that that the, that feedback as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and the language you use and your, your you know, the methods and communication, it's so essential. I mean, there's also the the situations where you can have those conversations and then it becomes clear once you're in the session that maybe it's not exactly what they said. There's the thing where you're like, you're the producer. And then you get in the session, you're like, you're the producer when we agree. You're the engineer when we disagree. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's an interesting thing, too. Yeah, people, people are very loose with their words sometimes. And, you know, what they say isn't always what, what, what they really mean. Or, or between everybody in the band, there could be like five different definitions of what that word means absolutely uh i i'm it, i'm i'm always most interested to ask the quietest person in the room i love that because you have a dynamic where there's always there's always going to be some kind of pecking order there's always going to be someone who's going to be i mean there's just it's it's a it's like a family i mean there's so many dynamics there there's going to be like more gregarious kind of outspoken people that always have an opinion and there's going to be people who are reserved and i want to know what the person that's thinking and quietest 
what do you think over there, quiet bass player? <laughs> yeah, it's always the bass player, and it's always like a ticking time bomb, right? Like, there's, they're quiet until they're not, and then when they're not, it, everyone feels the wrath of it. <laughs> it can be that way, yeah. I mean, it is so much like a family dynamic. Um, it's also it's also kind of a good thing that there aren't five quiet people or three quiet people and or five outspoken people. Sometimes it's, I mean, it is, there is sort of like an internal balance that you have to kind of understand. And um, five really strong opinions can be really hard to navigate. And sometimes even within the group, there's not sort of like an internal harmony that exists in that world. So, um yeah, I don't know. That 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 is an interesting thing. Every band's put together differently. The personalities all add up to kind of equal a th- its own sort of organism and and that dynamic, you know, you're you're kind of being invited in as a producer, you're kind of being invited in to be sort of a temporary family member in that that environment. And I mean, up to and including on a, a lot of records I work on, I end up playing on them, I'm writing parts where you know, I want to be as involved as people will have me, respectfully. Mm-hmm. But um, you do have to kind of understand where you're, what you're slotting into. And again, I think that's a lot of communication, a lot of discussions before you're in day one on the tracking. Um, kind of give working with the band beforehand or artists, if it's a single artist, it's me and one person. I do a lot of records where it's me and one person or me and two people lot of conversations to kind of like get our our internal thing kind of um i don't know kind of clarified um i like to a a big thing that i that i like to do to kind of like as a sort of a thought experiment with bands to kind of get them internally sort of talking about uh references and sounds and goals and kind of in a broad sense is i like to ask bands if I like to sort of challenge them to to come up with like a short string of words, phrases, something. And this is this is like kind of abstract and maybe a little hippie, but I'm kind of that's kind of me too. But um, <laughs> I like to challenge bands to go. Let's let's come up with like three words or like a little phrase or something that when you think about the sound of this imaginary record that we haven't started yet. What are some key words, some key identifying words that sort of embody either the sonics, the emotion, the feelings you have when you listen to the record? Um, and and in, in a broad sense, I think that sort of really helps glue together and unify the band to have, you know, real discussions instead of just going, can you send me three albums where you like the drum sounds? It's like, well, why do you like, what? why are those appealing to you you know mm-hmm. and what is it about those that are actually appealing because it may not actually be the drum sound it may be the way like how sparse the drums are it may be how busy or how tight or i mean it doesn't always have to be like a sonic reference and i think with only relying on references with artists can be a little tricky because the thing that that they may be kind of cueing off of may not be the thing you hear immediately and mm-hmm. we're all wired to look at the sonics of everything but it may be more than that. Um, so like, like I was working with uh, this band, Sun June from Austin, who I love. And I prompted that they were on tour at the time and we were chatting, they're in the van. I was like, why don't you guys spend some time talking about this? Like what are, what's like a, 
some key phrases, something to kind of like get you all sort of glued in together. And they came up with one of my favorites, which was su- which which was as abstract and broad as this whole thought experiment is to begin with, which was alternate timeline New Mexico prom. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, desert prom is like nostalgic. I'm like thinking of David Lynch, I'm thinking like Blue Velvet. It's like kind of slightly askew. It's not necessarily fully based in this like organic reality. Maybe it is kind of in a little bit of a like particular sonic world that's a little bit like off kilter. It that immediately gives me so I'm like, okay, I'm going to throw some 80s touches in here. We're going to like maybe do some Juno pads. It gives me ideas about even like the snare drum reverb, I'm immediately envisioning that thing. Um, sometimes it's more direct. Sometimes they're like fat, tight. Uh, you know, it might be, you know, it might be a, a more literal version, but um, I, it's just like a really fun, interesting way to sort of spark conversations about creativity before you're even in there to kind of get them on the same page and and you on the page and and kind of like start chatting about what that actually means to people um and it, and it gives you a very good roadmap for kind of the parameters of the world that you're going to create and curate it gives you palette ideas it gives you ideas even on like how you're going to track how you're going to set up if you want a really tight fat hard-hitting record okay great well we're probably not going to necessarily track everything live we're probably going to use tape we're going to that tells me about the drum sounds it's how even tells me in the mix, like, what does the crest factor need to look like? How, how punchy are we going? How open? How it's, it's, uh, it, I, I feel like you can derive a lot of information from this very <laughs> simple little nugget. So I don't know. Maybe that's, uh, that's like, that may be a, a little out there or a little like arty or something, but I, I think that's like a good way to start because you're kind of like in this creative zone before you've even gotten into the record process. I think that that's a a really cool way to approach it because, yeah, I mean, you can ask a band like, what artists do you like or what songs do you like or, you know, what kind of sonic texture do you want? And I I always find that people there's this like balance of people will always lean into like nostalgic songs like there's like a song from like 10, 15 years ago, maybe even older that they just they love. They've heard it a million times. So like to them, that's a reference of a, a great song. But then they're like. Yeah, but like our genre kind of dictates that like this is the modern sound. And so it's like you kind of have to straddle those two lines of like, well, are we going for this like nostalgic vintage kind of sound that maybe has a completely different uh, frequency balance or whatever? Are we going for this new kind of thing that's happening right now? So like I think getting people to describe their sound the way you you ask that, uh, it, it does force them to create that environment a little bit more and not just pick a song that they're just they've heard a million times and that they, they like that song you know sure because most of the songs people like what they really like is something that it reminds them of in their life from when that song was important to them of course and that may be a very different thing than going okay that's a good like kick drum reference that's that's really not what they're saying at all mm-hmm. and also too like by asking the band as a whole that then you kind of see where that common ground is between all the members because you might get that drummer who loves a specific sound and the guitar player who likes a specific sound and maybe these worlds that they're talking about are completely different from each other and it's like, well, how do we blend these together to make them actually work and make sense, right? Like, you know, you get the guy who's like, oh, I like the Led Zeppelin kind of sound for drums and then 
uh, I want this like modern metal sound on guitar or whatever. They, they don't work together. So, you know, how do you, exactly. how do you create that? Right. So, yeah, well it's, it's, and, and I don't want to have that conversation like the morning of our first day of tracking. I'd like for people to sort of have some time to triangulate and chew on that. And maybe they come up with really different things, but internally they've got some time to sort of, um, you know, compromise a little bit and sort of really envision something more broadly together. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, that kind of leads me to something else that I was curious to ask you about. Like when I was listening to um, a lot of the music that you've done, like you, you have a lot of diversity in the music that you work in. And to me, I always hear this like kind of like organic foundation of the work that you do like and and I, I really enjoy that like the drums always have like a this very natural sound to them they're not heavily sampled or whatever but then you also work with a lot of bands that will blend this organic sound with more uh electronic elements or synthy elements and and so those in some ways are two different worlds but you know as far as making them work together that that could be a challenge for a lot of people so i was curious to get your tips on like you know how you approach those kind of projects to make sure that those worlds blend well together. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. I think, I think just being a drummer, certainly that's like a, a huge, I think there's probably more of my thumbprint on productions that I work on in, in that department um, than others. And I think in particular, if there is a desire to sort of fuse these worlds, then I'm thinking of how do we make the drums actually in the room the actual drum itself and how do we capture it to where it does maybe sound almost sampled but it's real and uh you know that may be tuning it's gating it's how we kind of like set up the drums it may be that we record cymbals separate it may be that there's you know some process stuff to go well if we're gonna marry these disparate worlds which they don't have to be disparate. I think you can you can create very organic synth sounds and sort of ethereal non or non naturally occurring sounds. You can steer those into the organic world with filtering them and you know kind of kind of merging them. But I'm always trying to think of how do we sort of tip this one side slightly into maybe a center line, and then how do we bring this other side a little bit closer to where it doesn't feel like two different worlds kind of superimposed on each other um, where it feels unified. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a huge part of it is uh, like sort of, sort of knowing where you need to kind of compromise and steer on both ends to, to try to bring it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess if you're, if, you know, maybe you're using like some more analog synths, like old, older synths, there, there's kind of a character from a sonic perspective of, with those two. So maybe that's that's a cooler way to to blend something in rather than maybe using like a, a VST or something like that, you know, like maybe. Certainly, yeah. And that that is kind of my world. It's been interesting moving from Texas to LA. I kept my studio in Texas um, up until last month. We It's still a studio. There's someone else uh, um, running it. Um, but I moved all my stuff out and it was interesting being out here for the first year, um, that I was here without all of those analog synths and cool pedals and drum machines. Cause they're all 1200 miles away and challenging myself. And I got to say, I am not good at the soft synth world. It is not <laughs> fun for me to scroll through presets. It's not intuitive at all. It's, it's super not fun. So I, I, I now having some of my kind of go-to tools here i mean i've got my mellotron and juno just sat right next to the console here because i i'll put stuff in even on a mix um 
but having having those tools available that's certainly part of kind of steering maybe steering the synthetic world into the organic world um also i just i came up recording on tape and i still do that uh for a large majority of the records i work on at least for basics at least for drums even if we didn't record to tape i'll often throw them down to tape and back in um even on a mix sometimes i'll throw a bunch of tracks down to the two inch and then back in the computer i I I think I just I come to the engineering world. I think it's just a byproduct of who I was trained by and coming up in the late 90s, kind of at the end of the big studio era and actually being a tape op and an assistant in like a big nine room facility when those existed. Um, That's kind of like just where my gut and my instincts and the records that I love and that are important to me. There is something in that world that is just appealing to me when I feel like something is real, when I feel like there's um, yeah, warmth. I hate that word. It means It's like one of those words that means <laughs> nothing anymore. But the tape compression, the sounds of analog gear. Um, I mean, people do amazing, amazing work in the box. I don't know how to. I have tried. I am not good at it. I'm sure if I did like three records that way i'd probably be a lot better but every time i try i get frustrated i'm like just get the juno out or let's just like let's just run this to tape like i, I don't know how to do this with a sample um <laughs> i think part of that world and that that thing is just sort of the sounds that generally appeal to me how my ear has kind of just been trained over the course of growing up playing music what i like to feel all of that stuff is uh it's like I mean, it, it's not even a thing that I think about. It's just on an instinctual level. That is what appeals to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you have that internal reference of, yeah, what speaks to you and, and only you can feel that way, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting too, because it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about like creating that environment where creativity flows and people are inspired. And it sounds like for you, having that analog equipment is creating that environment for you as well, you know, because you you have to be as comfortable as well. Totally, it's a, it's fully an extension of my creativity, and it's part of my palette. It's part of my sound, and you know, I absolutely could mix on or track in any studio, and you know, with whatever limits. I I'm I'm happy to work without a limiting rule book, um, but I know that there are certain guideposts and certain things that it, when I rely on them, I feel very comfortable with. And I kind of know exactly how to bend them into the results I'm looking for. Um, so, yeah, I think that's just part of everyone's toolkit. That's just kind of how you're wired. That's just the music you grew up on. It's the bands you played in. It's the kind of all part of that sort of like gut instinct thing of just having like a really strong sense of yourself and and faith in your judgment and your emotional judgment and, and sonics of, of quality. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't think I could unbake that. It's true. I mean, yeah, if you, if you grew up only having digital in your world and your impression of what a synth was, was like some native instruments bundle or something like that, then that's all you would know. And you would feel very comfortable working in that, in that environment. But yeah, when you have a history of, you know, working with a specific tool and and understanding, like, you know, working with a specific sound and all that kind of stuff, then you're going to lean into that because you 
you like it, you're comfortable with it. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And and people that are good at that are every bit. I mean, they're it's it's amazing to watch. I just I'm I'm not as wired for that. I know I've bandmates um, who work off of an Apollo twin, and everything is contact, and they write incredible music that sounds so good. I try. I it's just not. I it's not instinctual for me. But um, I do enjoy the effort of trying because sometimes when you fail spectacularly, it ends up being something kind of interesting. So that's true. I think that kind of comes back to the openness. I'm like, I kind of know my sweet spot, but um, I'm happy to like try whatever. And if it sounds cool, great. And it might be that we use a soft synth, and I just you know run it back through the space echo and. Or whatever it is that where I'm like, okay, there's that little extra little thing that feels a little more like me. Yeah, I love that you brought up the idea of failing spectacularly. It's just, it's something you do have to embrace sometimes, and and you know you you uh, you either learn a lot from that, or you uh, or you well you you always learn from it no matter what. But sometimes you you learn that doing that got you a cool sound, and that's ultimately what you need, and then. Other times it's like, okay, I learned a lesson. This does not work. So let's avoid Absolutely. this at all costs. And that that just comes from that thing of being willing to take risks and and working in a trusting environment where it's okay to fail. Mm-hmm. And everyone can go, yep, that didn't work. Moving on. Next thing. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that also comes back to like those early conversations that you're having with bands because they have to understand that, yeah, you might like they're hiring you because they all ultimately want you to get the sound that, you know, they're coming to you for. But they also have to be willing to understand that part of that might and might mean there's some experimenting going on and you might not be able to just get it right on the first try. You know, you maybe have to experiment with the mics and that kind of stuff. And Sure. Or in a mix. I mean, I've worked with, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with like some mixers who I absolutely idolize and have for a long time. And I love the work they do. And I'm working on a project. Where I'm like, this would be so cool if Dave Fridman or Peter Cadis mixed this. And sometimes it's amazing. And sometimes you're like, huh. One plus one doesn't equal two. It's not <laughs> what I thought it was going to be. And that's okay, too. But, uh, you know, it's a, a willingness to sort of, like, embrace and try and and uh, and allow for whatever you're bringing, whatever anyone else involved in the creative process is bringing to add up, to allow the song to be, or the record, whatever, to be what that is, um, rather than being staunchly hard-lined on, it has to be this thing. Totally. Um, and that's where like the, that, that is sort of the danger. References are good. It can be very helpful for developing the palette, but it's also where the danger of reference points can kind of like box you in where you're too slavishly devoted to those things or mm-hmm. devoted to this preconceived idea and, and not willing to sort of allow, allow something to kind of blossom in a different way, in an unexpected way that's maybe really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too because like with the home studio market now, people are dabbling into it and there are people who are just using it to record their ideas and, and you know, they, they maybe learn, you know, going back to this idea of like the, the rules of audio, they, they maybe learn some of those rules and then, you know, when they get into a studio with you, then maybe they're like, oh, he's not, he's not doing those things the way I learned them. And, and like sometimes that, can, that in itself can maybe... Uh, be, be problematic when you have someone else who, you know, has this preconceived notion of how you should be running your sessions or something like that. But, um, you know, there still has to be that openness to, to learn new things. And, you know, personally for me too, like as an engineer, I, you know, I have my own way of doing things, but I, I hate recording my own band stuff. I, I love working with other people and watching them do things in ways that I would never do it myself because I learned something from that, you know, and, and 
like I could do it my way, but that's boring to me. I want to try something new. Sure. It's, it's, it's why everyone needs to work with a producer. I mean, not, okay, maybe I shouldn't say, every, I, I don't want to be hard-lined on anything. It's why it is beneficial to have collaborators. Uh, if I'm making the Danny Reich record, I'm not producing it. Like, I, it's too Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. It's me on me on me doing my thing. I, I, I like the challenge of, um, of being able to, like, work with other people and, and just creatively step back from a certain side of the technical aspects and allow someone to do what they do, someone who makes records that I really like. And maybe it's a very different setup and something I'm not comfortable with. But, um, but if the sounds are there and that's, that's sort of what they're bringing with their personality, then embracing that and sort of like just making that sound as awesome as possible is the goal. Mm-hmm. I, I am no stranger. I will tell you, I'm no stranger to, especially now, this did not used to be the case. Uh, the band member, there's always at least one who's kind of the de facto recording person. Oh, yeah. Who knows just enough to be dangerous and not enough to be helpful. <laughs> So true. <laughs> Just enough to absolutely like destroy the flow because of whatever they read on Gearspace or whatever forum told them that you always have to cut 4.7K in every hi-hat, like these crazy things. And you're like, yeah. Just sit back. Just feel a little bit. Don't worry. You hired me to do this. Like, I got this. Yeah, it's part of the reason why I don't like doing attended sessions for anything. It's like, I, just let me do my thing. I don't need you like watching over my shoulder, critiquing it at every point of the way. Like, I know where I'm going with this. So let me get there and then we'll we'll, we'll assess at that point, you know? Sure. And having an audience in the room, you know, I, I've noticed that I tend to mix safer. I tend to be less adventurous because you maybe don't want to do the thing that could be super awesome that is also potentially could be super stupid sounding you kind of play it safe and you kind of give them the thing and you kind of just put the bow on it and uh that's no fun absolutely i yeah i i love uh there's a band i've worked with quite a bit called the octopus project and they are uh endlessly curious about pushing me to um plug chains of gear in together that i have never plugged in one <laughs> after another creating weird chains that i just just like as a as a creative experiment, like putting some crazy compressor after some whatever it is, they're just like whatever you've never done before, try that. And I love that kind of curiosity and that like having the the longer leash um, of being able to explore. And that that is like the perfect kind of collaboration, of course. And sometimes that just sets you off in a whole new direction. Like it, it changes the the entire vibe of a song and inspires you to do so many other things. I, I can think of that experience myself with my my old band like we we worked with a guy named dean nelson who he um he had done some work with beck and some other people back in the day and like i remember our band and we came in we were recording guitars we had our tones all set up and then he's like you know what i'm gonna fuck with your guitar pedals i'm like plugging in th- things that you've never tried before let's just do this and this and then we spent like probably two hours messing around with tones but then we're, we were like holy shit like this is like, this is a really cool vibe on this. Like, let's, let's lean into this on all the songs now, you know, like it kind of just inspires you sometimes. And, uh, you, you just have to have that, that willingness to, to try new things and be open to it and embrace it. Yeah. That's where all the good stuff is. For sure. Discovery, pushing yourself, yeah. doing something you never would have expected. That is the fun stuff. That's what like, uh, at the end of the process, you look back and go, that was really fun. That was really cool that we did all this crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm I'm also curious to know then uh, when you had emailed me a list of some songs that you'd recently or albums that you'd recently worked on, and on that list, I noticed that you'd mentioned you you were co-producing on a bunch of those records, and I'm curious to get a sense of how the dynamic works when you're co-producing because, you know, people typically think of the producer as the one having the main vision for the, the album. And when you've got multiple people involved in that process, I imagine that there's some sort of discrepancy sometimes and that kind of stuff. So um, as far as creating that creative environment for people and having all be, everyone all being on the same page, how does that work from a co-producing standpoint? Yeah, well, on, on some of those, it's just that I produced five songs and gotcha. someone else did a, yeah, a number of them. So... It's not always multiple producers sort of, you know, jockeying for it. But, I mean, I think I think Congleton mentioned this on his episode with you that, um, or maybe it was in his tape op article, but I, I en- enjoyed hearing that, you know, he was like, ev- every record is a co-production. It's always you plus everyone's taste. It's always a combination. It's never you and your will and everyone bends to it. I mean, sometimes you have to be a little more dictatorial but i would like to think that you know you're sort of like a benevolent dictator in the in those cases <laughs> when you have to like crack the whip um but yeah i mean and, and in some cases that's that co co-production or really what it what it is is that we are just both producers on it i don't even know if it's co-production but yeah um someone has done like for for example with the bayonne record that i did last year it's uh coming out this um it's coming out in may or june um, Roger, main dude, he did so much work on his own to get these songs up to a certain spot. And he's like, I've got it to 85%. Like, I, I just need, you know, this collaborative thing to help open it up and kind of keep pushing it. And, you know, it doesn't feel right. Even, even if we radically rearranged the songs and completely changed how sections work and all that stuff, you can't ignore all of the work that has gone into it. And I, and I, I'm not trying to sort of go mine. This is me. It's like, well, you did. I mean, months of work shaping and doing all this stuff to get it to a point where I could even come in and color on top of it. So I think just in fairness and just sort of like an effort to be like lead with humility, which is how I would generally like to operate in this world. (laughs) um, I think a lot of that just stems from sort of acknowledging how much work goes into every record from multiple people's perspectives. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, these people have spent sometimes years working on these songs and arranging things and getting a certain sound, so you don't want to just say, like, cool, let's scrap all of that. Let's, you know, we're doing things my way Yeah, now. this was mine. <laughs> I did all of this. You're like, no. I mean, and, and specifically on the Bayonne record, uh, there's another producer out here in L.A., John Joseph, who collaborated with Roger and played a bunch of stuff on the record and really worked on some of those songs and kind of did a huge amount of shaping on them. And then, you know, those were alley-ooped over to me to kind of like refine and dial in and mix and kind of go through that filter. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it also doesn't mean that everyone is sort of in the room at the same time jockeying for producer status. I think it's just sort of like more acknowledging contributions than anything. Of course. Yeah. That's cool, man. I really, I really appreciate that, and I think that's a cool approach to how you how you handle your records, um, dude. I think we've made a great episode all about 
you know, just creating an, an environment where everyone feels creative and inspired and, and leaning into that creativity. Um, but selfishly, I want to ask you one technical question because uh, okay, you got some nerd I stuff. Wanna go in, I want to go in a different direction for, for some just just a little chunk of the podcast. Um, we got to I'm, I'm kind of I'm guilty of always steering things into this like broad psychological existential zone. I, that's where my brain is wired. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, <laughs> snare drum. I don't know. Uh, how are you feeling today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good, man. I, lo- I love these kind of conversations because I think that, um, yeah, a lot of people will kind of expect that these kind of podcasts are, you know, learning all about the technical side of things. But like all of the stuff we're talking about here is equally as important. You know, it's like you're not going to get clients if you don't create this safe environment for people or, or, or you might get a client, but you're going to lose them very quickly. So, you know, these, these kind of conversations are very important to have. Um, but from a technical standpoint, I wanted to ask you about your drums because uh, you're a drummer. So obviously, I'm a drummer too, and I think we could both agree that we are obsessed with our instrument. And it for, it's a, it's a difficult instrument to to learn, so or to learn how to to record. So you kind of get obsessed with it sometimes. Um, but one thing that I heard you mentioned in a, in another podcast that you were talking about how you actually don't like to record your drums clean at all. You always like to push the the preamp a little bit. Is that true? Did I did I hear that correctly? That is- Oh, that's very true. Okay. <laughs> I, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, what I want to do is to create sounds on the front end while the drummer's playing, whether it's me or someone else on the record, that is immediately inspiring. And that usually does not mean recording it all clean, and then we'll figure it out how it all sounds in the mix. I want, I want to hear something back that's exciting, and maybe that maybe it's explosive, maybe it's the reverb choices maybe it's crunching the you know the sort of center of the kit mic or or running a molt and doing something wild on that but i and this maybe this is because i come from like the more analog workflow but i want to hear it come out of the speakers while someone's playing the way i want it to sound approximately on the record um because that's just more exciting i mean being in headphones and playing when you can feel the compression grabbing and you feel there's like this support and something to push into, it it just adds excitement to the process. And I feel like you get better results that way. Um, so I'm always, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll leave myself a little safety net. Like maybe we have a Coles over the shoulder and I want to do something crazy with it. But I can also molt, you know, out of the pre. I can record three tracks in Pro Tools and do something wild on one of them. And I'm like, this might be too crazy, but like, I want this in the mix. I want people to hear this and feel excited by it and get that energy. And yeah, maybe it doesn't make it all the way to the final mix or it gets kind of blended with something else I've done. But uh, yeah, the idea is just to sort of create something that feels immediately like a record. The second the band walks in for playback, that is such a pivotal moment. Whether you're just recording drums on their own or it's a live tracking session, that moment where everyone takes off headphones and comes in and listens, that is so pivotal in creating the trust and people going, holy shit, we sound so good. Yeah. Uh, And I think a lot of that comes from sort of envisioning the final product in the tracking. I know you can do so much with mixing. You can do anything with mixing. But if you don't understand what you're building from the first aspect of the recording you kind of can't really build the world. Like, I feel like those choices inform every other decision downstream. How much room is there for these synth pads? Well, I don't know. Are we using a ton of the room mics? Or did you just capture them kind of clean and we'll just see what the drums sound like in the mix? I want to hear it come back the way 
I want it to sound so it can also make, I mean, it's, it's partly to inspire people, but it's also to help make better choices as we're building the song and it will guide the song. It'll guide production choices around the entire process. If you commit, if you make choices and commit and are confident in those commitments. Um, so, and maybe that's a tape thing. Maybe it's cause I'm just like, this is the time you do it. You have to do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it's just cause I'm, I don't know, because I know what I want to hear and we've talked about it and I know what we're going for and I want it to sound like that now. I've, uh, we've all been sold this thing. You're like, oh yeah, just wait till you mix. Oh, just wait till you master. You know what? I've done that <laughs> as a musician being in projects. It's a lie. Just make it sound like that now. There's no reason why you can't make it sound like that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's, no, there's nothing saying that uh, once you actually start doing it in the mix that it's going to sound better. You know, it, it's like you're going to have overwhelm from having to go through hundreds of plugins and try try different things or whatever. You know, it's like just just if you know the sound you're after, go get go get it right away. Absolutely. It's like, well, what are you creating? Like, I don't even know what world we're existing in. Our, our, I mean, to kind of reference the the thing about sort of organic versus synthetic and are are we in this world? Are we in a roomy drum sound world? Are we using like more fantasy, ethereal, like wilder effects? Are we I mean, like. All of that guides every other aspect, and I, I, I want to. I just want that to happen immediately. Um, I remember specifically. This is, um, this is, this was like a real moment for me. I did uh, a band I was playing in called Shearwater. I did a few records for for them, um, and was touring with the band and uh, um, for I don't know, five or six years. Uh, we did a, a from the basement taping with Nigel Godrich, with Daryl Thorpe Engineering, um, and. I remember, and I absolutely idolize Nigel. He's like, I mean, clearly he's one of the best engineers, producers in the world. Um, I remember how sheepish he was about when he came in after we'd run some takes. He's like, listen, it's just like, this is just a rough, just, you know, I'm, I'm going to like work on all this stuff. <laughs> he's really over explaining all of this. He was like, I'm going to leave the room because I, I'm, I just can't, I won't be able to listen to it in here with you guys. It's, I'm just going to be too whatever and if he played it back he played back some of our live takes absolutely jaw-dropping stunning and that <laughs> moment was so pivotal i'm like we just laid this down this just happened five minutes ago and this sounds like a record already and i really appreciated that moment and was very charmed by the humility and the clearly he's a perfectionist I and mean, you listen to his records are absolutely stunning but uh I, both the humility of going, this is going to get better, don't worry, but then also the moment of going, this is so empowering and I feel so pumped about our band and what we're doing right now. And I want everyone to have that experience. Absolutely. I love that. I, I, I like that story for multiple reasons. Like, you know, A, it shows that, that uh, yeah, humility of it all. And, uh, you know, it shows that we all still strive to improve and, and get better even when you're at the top of your game, right? Um but but I but I love what you said there. But just it, it, when you get the tone right, it inspires you in a lot of ways. Like there's nothing worse to me than like getting a mix from a band and they've never committed anything. It's like you get like four sets of overheads, or you get like you know five mics on a guitar, and it's like what what do you want? What's the sound you're after? You know, like if you have that stuff committed early on, then it it, it influences the entire project. It's how you define the production style. Completely. And I mean, those choices, especially, especially with the drum angle, a uh, few elements in a mix 
define the reference points, the era you're referencing. Uh, kind of like like drums have such a powerful impact on defining your production style. Um, it's partly why I think drummers make great producers. Um, it's also a complicated thing to understand the mechanics of and record properly. And and if you don't know that you're just never going to get the attack out of like that WFL snare drum from the fifties and you really just need like a brass snare, if those things aren't instinctive, um, I think it can be harder to, to really like master drum recording if you don't have like an instinctive understanding of the instrument. It's, it's a very powerful tool. Um, I also think drummers and bass players make very good producers because uh, the understanding of energy is so intuitive and so much of what makes a song work or not work is the energy. It's the build, it's the dynamics, it's uh, as a drummer, you're playing live, you're kind of like, you're kind of like the catcher in baseball or something. You're kind of controlling the whole field. You're kind of making all the calls, you're reining everyone in. Everyone kind of lifts and plays to your dynamics. You're setting the tempo. The push and pull is like, it's kind of, you're kind of pulling a lot of strings as a drummer in terms of like kind of, yeah, creating and, and maintaining that energy. And when you have that gut reaction to the way energy flows and when something hits, it's, it's a, a major advantage. Not to say there aren't, I mean, obviously there's great producers that don't even play instruments. I mean, there's... People come at it from every angle, but I do think there's a there's some advantages there being coming at it from like the drum world. Absolutely, I think you perfectly articulated how I felt about music and like the uh, the the vibe of a song. Uh, uh, but but part of me is like always felt like uh, oh I'm just biased. I'm a drummer, you know. So maybe that's why I pay, pay attention to drums more or something like that. But but I think you're right. Like you know, I know I know you're a drummer as well. But but. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's so true. Like those those drums, like they dictate so much of the character of a, of an album, and you know the way you have like reverbs and space and ambience and all that stuff. Like that typically originates with the drums, and because you're typically recording those in a in a room, you're trying to capture the sound of that room as opposed to like a close mic on a guitar amp or something like that. So like there's so much character that comes out of just that drum tone that really puts you in a specific spot and uh, gives those gives those songs that character and that vibe so yeah i i i, I had never really had worded it that way or, you know but the way you said it there i think was very well well put thanks yeah i uh i i think a lot about all of this stuff <laughs> it's been my whole life's obsession is making records and playing drums and uh also just straight up recording drums is the most fun thing Everyone knows that. I agree. It's it's the instrument that you get to play with the most toys, and like you know, we we love that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's the hardest thing, so we embrace the challenge as well. I think. Awesome, dude. Well, I think that that's probably a good spot to wrap up. I could probably pick your brain so much more about your drum sounds because I I just love the way your tracks sound, and and uh, I'll, I'll probably send you an email of questions afterwards. But <laughs> but, right, I, but I think that's yeah. a good spot to wrap up. But uh, if people want to learn more about you, potentially even work with you, what are the best places for them to do that? Um, I'm on all the I'm I'm on the World Wide Web. I'm findable if you search for me. Uh, good Danny's is the name of my studio. GoodDannys.com, or you can find me on Instagram. Has links to kind of everything if you want to check out some of my work or see what I've been up to or see all the nerdy gear pictures that I'm always posting. Um, that's probably a good spot. So awesome, cool. And I'll definitely include the links in the show notes as well. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for being on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Mike. Had fun talking to you.
So that was my interview with Danny Reich, and I thought that he brought up some really great topics as far as creating that thriving environment in the studio and making people feel like they're making a record and having fun doing that throughout the entire process. And I thought it was really fun to hear how he likes to ask bands to define their sound and give them a few words about how they would describe that sound. I think that's a really interesting exercise, and I think it does leave a lot of uh, room for creating these sonic landscapes to make albums sound really interesting. And it isn't just your typical way of saying, like, you know, what what drums do you like on which records and that kind of stuff. Uh, instead, it kind of really does create an aesthetic behind a band. And that's really important. Like, when you think about what a brand is, you have this perceived feeling about a brand or a, a perception of the image of a brand and what that means, right? And you can definitely take some of these words that a band tells you and turn that into the band's brand. And I think that that kind of caters itself to marketing and all sorts of stuff later on. So to be able to define this for an artist, I think, is a really important thing. And uh, I love that Danny does this very early on in his process with bands. And clearly it works to his advantage because the albums he makes sound incredible. So, um, yeah, definitely something to try out next time you go to record an artist as well. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I hope that you took a lot of great things from it. And if you did and you are not subscribed to the podcast yet, definitely make sure to do that. That way you don't miss out on any new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you could, I'd really appreciate it if you guys could leave a rating and a review, preferably five stars on the Apple podcast app. It definitely allows us to spread the word about this podcast and inspire other musicians who are looking to learn more about the process of recording their own music as well. So if you could do that, that'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, Thank you so much. And I can't wait to read your reviews. And then lastly, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, there are a ton of great resources designed to help you make the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music easy. And one resource that I want to point you to while you're there is called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the mixing process step-by-step so that you know exactly what to do, what to listen for, how to dial in your settings, what tools to use, all of that kind of stuff, so that it really makes the process super easy and you can get the sound that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers. So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. Thank you.